I have some great news for you. The political season is just around the corner. (laughs) And it seems that every couple of years, we have to go to the polls and we have to cast our vote for the person or that party of our choice to serve as our representatives in our government. And if you're like me, I do what I can to find out as best I can about the various individuals that are running for office. Um, But typically, at least in our state, if you're a Republican, you just vote Republican. If you're a Democrat, you just vote Democrat. If you're a Libertarian, you're kind of lost. You don't know where to land necessarily. Um, And so, you know, typically when it comes to party line stuff, um, people typically kind of make their decision. But the, the part that I find difficult is the judicial votes. You see, judges don't list their party affiliation. They just list their accomplishments. They list the things that are part of their record. And so you you read their material. You know, you get just tons and tons of material in the mail, right? And you vote for this judge, vote for this judge. And even when you're looking at the comparisons, you're, you're trying to find in those things common ground with areas that measure might want to say biblical Christianity, and you're trying to, trying to get in there because you want to vote for a judge that is going to be honorable, that is going to respect the rule of law, and is not going to see it as a means by creating law. You want someone simply to uphold the law. That's what the law is there for. But I tell you what, I, I, I do my homework, I work hard at it, and I make my vote, and I walk out of that polling booth still a little uneasy about the choices that I've made because I really don't know these people that are being put on the ballot as far as judgeships are concerned. So there's this feeling of of being cynical to some degree or, or even discouraged about the whole concept and the whole thing that I am doing. People ultimately do want to trust the people that they put in those positions. Now, I've had the privilege of serving on a number of juries And so I've been able to listen to judges before the actual trial takes place, share some things about the trial and share some things about the law, and I have been actually very, very impressed with the judges that I have listened to who have had great appreciation for the law, great appreciation for the system, and in in my opinion, have really helped me in my awareness and my appreciation for what they do. Now, you may have been in different situations. But I have to recognize that even all of those judges may have integrity, they are still sinful creatures and can be swayed by political endeavor, they can be swayed by some ideology that they may hold to that would adjust maybe that particular rule of law. But scripture speaks of a judge that is never ever tainted by sin, who will always make the right judgment who will always be someone that you and I can count on to rule fairly and appropriately and righteously for every situation. He will never, ever, ever get it wrong. And of course, that judge is Jesus, and Jesus is that righteous 
judge. And there's a few things I want us to see here about Jesus being this righteous judge. Notice John 7, 24. We have been studying through this book, and we, we pick this up in his conversation with the Pharisees. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Well, the Pharisees didn't have the ability to judge with right judgment because they were tainted by their thinking and how they had distorted the law. And then we find also in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. His judgments, meaning his ability to discern and to see and to call what it is being what it is. He makes the right decision. He always makes the right decision. So clearly, because Jesus is God, because he is the word that was in the beginning with God, his judgments are always right. He never gets it wrong. He's always able to sort through the evidence and come out to a right conclusion. And he will stand up for the truth and he will stand up for the righteous. Always, every time. Now, aren't you thankful that we have a judge like that? Now, not only is he the judge, but he is also the light that is shining in the darkness. And we've seen that chapter 8 and chapter 9 and how both of these titles that Jesus uh, has, I am the light of the world, are used. John 8, 12, and then John 9, 5, which is the passage that we are looking at today. So he is the judge, and he's righteous. He is the light that shines into the world. But then I want to remind you also of the purpose of the book. And in particular, if you're visiting here and you haven't studied through the Gospel of John, this is a passage of Scripture that I would encourage you to to mark up, or at least to note, and that is John 20, 30, and 31. Let me read it, because it gives us the theme of the book and what John is trying to do. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, John is saying, the ones that I've recorded for you are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so, as we have said many, many times before, these things are all the evidences that John is giving in this gospel for the purpose of putting Jesus on display. He's giving evidence after evidence after evidence of who Jesus is. And we have gone through John 5, John 6, John 7, and John 8, which are full of discourses and interactions that Jesus has with the the, the Pharisees and, and the Jews together, and he is constantly saying, this is who I am, this is what I look like, this is what I've come to do, this is who my father is, and this is where I, 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 I have been, and this is where I am now, but I have been sent from heaven, and I have a message for you. He is constantly sharing who he is and what he has been called to do. That is the evidence John puts out there, and the purpose of that evidence is so that we would believe and we talked about superficial belief and real belief. And we've seen both of those kind of on display here in today's passage in particular. We see true belief ultimately. But the belief is simply part of the way because ultimately where John wants us to go, as you see in the diagram there, is he wants us to have life. That's life with him. It's everlasting life. It is abundant life. And that is his goal, that is his purpose. Now, as we circle back to John chapter 9, we also must take note of what the theme of this chapter is, and I would draw your attention to verse 39. The theme of chapter 9 in particular 
is this. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. He comes into this world as a what? As a judge. That's what he's saying. That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He comes as a judge. That word judge, the idea is to make a decision, to make an evaluation, to be discerning, and to make a call, you might want to say. He comes and he makes a judgment on those who see that they would ultimately be blind, and those who are blind would ultimately see. Now understand here that those who are talked about being the ones that see think they see, but they really don't see. Those who are blind truly are blind, and we see them ultimately come to the place where they see. And then remember, John is writing this gospel not simply to record information just so that someone might happen to come by and read it. He is recording all of these things with the purpose of us, the reader, reading about who Jesus is and coming to conclusions about who he is and what he calls us to. And so he's driving to the fact that through Jesus Christ we can believe and we can have life, but in this particular passage he presents Jesus as this judge, as a righteous judge. So let's just kind of think through what he is saying here as we come to our text today and how we're going to approach it. How does the light shine in the darkness is the question. And here is how the light shines in the darkness. Jesus as the righteous judge sheds his light on mankind and reveals blindness in sight. The judge comes, shines the light. When he shines the light, boom, blindness is, ver- is on display, sight is on display. He makes it clear. What does light do? It exposes what is actually there. So when Jesus comes and he's interacting with the Pharisees and he's speaking to them, what is he doing? He's shining light. And he's exposing their sin. He's exposing the hardness of their heart. That's what Jesus does with us all the time. Every time we open the word of God, what is he doing? He's shining the light of the gospel. He's shining the light of his word on our hearts. And he, his desire is to expose things in us that do not conform to his will. Now, we can respond in a number of different ways. We can respond by saying, that's just not right. We can get angry with him because he's constantly exposing Or we can say, Lord, thank you. You have created me new in Christ Jesus, and now I want to know how I can move closer to being Christ-like, to being what you called me to be. And so I I want to see those areas where there is sin and where where there's a a failure for me to, to do the things that you've called me to do. So here is the theme then. The righteous judge shines his light on mankind so that those who are blind may see and those who may see may become blind. And we're going to look at this, this chapter now in four movements. Last week, uh, we looked at the first 12 verses, and we looked at the actual miracle that took place. But the four parts then that we're going to look at here are the miracle, we're going to look at some of the evidence, we're going to pull the evidence out of the text and show what it says and, and what is revealed. We're going to see the response of both the Pharisees and this blind man And then we're going to ultimately see the judgment. We're going to see the decision. We're going to see um, the answer that Jesus gives. And all of this is for our benefit. And all of this, by the way, stepping back, is happening because Jesus is giving an illustration through this story of the blind man of what he has already been saying through the Gospel of John. 
through the events and the interactions he's had with the Pharisees. He's had this discourse, and it, you guys have hung with me well as we've gone through chapter 5 and, and, and through chapter 7, because that's not easy material. I've talked with other pastors that preach through John, and they're just like, man, you know, we get in these chapters, it's like dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. It just gets, it gets heavy, and you guys have hung in there. And we come to chapter 9, and what God blesses us with is a picture through this, this wonderful miracle of the blind man who receives sight, and ultimately how he comes to faith at the end. This wonderful picture of what the Pharisees were doing when Jesus was revealing himself and how they are blind, and a wonderful picture of how this person is born blind receives sight, not just physical sight, but spiritual sight also. It's a wonderful illustration of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how different people respond to that light and to that message. So let's just pause right now. Let's just take a moment to pray. Would you do that with me, please? Lord, we just ask for your help right now. This is an incredible passage of scripture. And I ask, Lord, that for those of us who have been a part of, of this series, Lord, that we would, as we study this passage together, that we would see all the different nuances, Lord, that you are bringing and that are attached to, so to speak, with little uh, threads of, of, of connectivity, Lord, to other things that you said so far in this gospel, that we would see those on display. And Lord, for those who may be here for the first time and are jumping in with us here, Lord, that you would help them to recognize that this is not a standalone passage. This is, a, this is part of your unfolding gospel, Lord. So help us to see the context, to see the beauty of what it is that you're doing through this story. And Lord, that we would be teachable, we would be humble. And so, Lord, what we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? And, Lord, what we have not, would you give us? For your glory, we ask these things. Amen. So, first of all, I want to just highlight the miracle performed by the light. This is what we looked at last week. The light is shining into the, the, this, this blind man's experience, and it reveals his condition. He's blind. The light also provides the cure. And that was when Jesus spat on the ground into the mud and he anointed his eyes and told him to go to wash in the pool of Siloam and he did that and he, he was cured. And then ultimately, the last thing there is it's the light that produces this change in this man. Okay? It's all because of the light. It's all because of what Jesus is doing. Okay? It's not like this man said, ah, okay, wait, I want to talk to this guy and I want him to do X, Y, and Z. No, Jesus, unannounced, boom, identifies him. The disciples bring up a question, and Jesus then comes, and he, he does this for this man. Beautiful, beautiful picture. It was a sign, okay? And this is, I think, the sixth sign we have in the Gospel of John. And a sign is simply an event or a miracle that points to something beyond the immediate event or the miracle. In other words, yes, this man received his physical sight, but there's something deeper going on here that, is, that, that uh, Jesus is accomplishing through this. It's not just about a man who received his sight, physically speaking. It is about a man who received his sight physically, but as a picture of the blindness that was in the heart of the Pharisees, and ultimately he sees spiritually. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of that. So we see those two realities, all right? But let's, let's move now into this next one, the evidence that is presented by the light. Now, we're going to look at three witnesses. Now, typically speaking, 
in biblical terminology, how many witnesses do you need to, in order to, to prove that something is true? Right? Two or three witnesses is usually how it's, how it's communicated, right? We are going to look at two witnesses, maybe one of those, sorry, three witnesses, one of those witnesses may be thrown out because it's going to be the man himself, okay? But we're going to look at some of the witnesses here. First of all, we have his friends and neighbors. You read that earlier. Some of them said, is not this the man? And these are the people that saw him every day, begging. They saw him you know, on the side of the road, wherever he was, with a little plate in front of him, asking for money, asking for food, whatever it might be. They recognized him. They saw him. Is not this the man? Someone else said, yeah, it is he. And there were some that said, no, it's someone like him. And we don't know all the reasons why they responded that way, but they certainly recognized him. They actually identified him as the blind beggar. Okay? And they are bringing evidence to say, you know what? We, we saw him. Now, if this guy is blind and he's a beggar, do you think that just happened once, every once in a while? You know, maybe every, every four months he would go and he would sit down and say, okay, you know, it's my time to beg for today. Okay, I got enough for the next four months. Is that typically what happened? No. He was probably out there day after day after day. He was part of the fabric of their community. They saw him. They knew him. That's pretty good evidence to show that this is the guy who's been sitting out there all this time. We know him. We've seen him. We've observed him. He's been part of our community. And uh, secondly, we find his parents. His parents are brought into the picture. The Pharisees interview him, and they say, you know, is this your son? And he's just a couple of things that they say. We know that this is our son, is their testimony. They say, we know that he was born blind. So the parents are the best ones to answer the question, first of all, is this your son? How many of you people, if you have children, know your children? Okay. And if you knew that your, children, your child was born with some kind of a, of a defect, in particular blindness, do you think as a parent you might be aware of that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the best people to know whether this is true are the parents, right? I want to say second best are those people that saw this person day in and day out, day in and day out. So the evidence is there. We know this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but we don't know how. We just know that he was born blind, and now he can see, but we don't know exactly how that took place. And then we have the man. We talked a little bit about this last week, but... As the friends and neighbors are asking the questions, he's bouncing around saying, hey, I am the man. I am the man. I, I am that guy you're talking about. It is, it's, it's me. And then as he's brought um, you know, into interaction with, uh, with the Pharisees and he's giving his, his, his I want to say, testimony, the evidence, he says, and when, they, when they ask him, you know, who did this? What well, was that man called Jesus? That's part of his testimony. What did he do? He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Well, you know, it, we think that he's a sinner. And he answers, I don't know whether he's a sinner. All I know is I was blind and now I what? I see. I mean, that's his testimony. And one of the beautiful things about these three witnesses is that they are they're very honest in their testimony. You don't get any sense that there's anything contrived, that there's any kind of deception going on. It's just kind of like, we know this and we don't know this. It's very simple. It's very plain. It's very honest. Now, this is the evidence that we have. So we have the miracle, the event, the incredible event, and then we have the witnesses that are verifying that what took place at the event actually took place. And when they come and talk to the man again, 
they ask, you know, where is Jesus? And he says what? I don't know. And then they ask again, you know, what did he do? And he responds, I think this is kind of where the, where the humor kicks into this passage, I have told you already. Now, if you've been with us as we've been studying this, you know, the, the Gospel of John, what is he doing? What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Basically, how many times do I have to tell you the same thing? You ask the same question, where did you come from? I told you that here, I told you that here, I told you that here, I told you that here. Again, 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 right? The same thing is happening here with this man who was formerly blind. All of this evidence, friends, did three things. It proved, first of all, that each witness was credible. All right? The investigation went on. It proved that each witness was credible. I didn't get you this part here, okay? It also corroborated the evidence of the events of the story. So, so all the evidence reinforces that what took place actually took place. There's no one contradicting themselves here. This is evidence that is corroborating um, each other's testimony. The third thing is this, it answered the necessary investigative questions. Just one more time here, here are the questions. Was this man born blind? What does the evidence say? Yes. Was this man healed of his blindness? What's the answer? Yes, all right. Who healed this man? The man called Jesus. How did he heal the blind beggar? We don't know. I mean, they knew he put mud on his eyes, but not like it was magical or anything like that. We don't know. Where is this man? What's the answer? We don't know. There it is. I mean, there's the evidence. It's very, very simple. It's very plain, but it reinforced those, th those three things, that the witnesses are credible, that the testimony is corroborated, and these questions are now answered. Now, all of this interaction, friends, remember, is a reflection of the kind of evidence that Jesus was giving the Pharisees as he was talking to them through the chapters that we have recorded. And let's just think about this maybe in three different sections. Evidence about his relationship with his father. What did he say about that? I am from above. I have heard from the father. I have listened to him. I've been sent from him. That's just a few of them. There's a lot more we could say. Now, I'm not going to preach chapter 5 through chapter 8 again, all right? But it's just kind of a, a little bit of pieces. He's talking about his relationship with the Father. It's all there. Secondly, evidence about who he is and what he was sent to do, right? From the start, chapter 1, I know there's a prologue there, but we have John coming on the scene, and what does John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a pretty powerful and bold statement right at the beginning. And then as we go along, there's all these other images and pictures. He's the bread of life. He's the water that brings life. He's the light of the world. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the I am. He's the I am he. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. It's not that chapter 9 is the first time any of these, these things have come up. Jesus has been talking about this repeatedly. Here's the evidence again, again. Another evidence that he has uh, been bringing to them um, is reinforced by the testimony of some people. John the Baptist would be one testimony. John chapter 5, verse 30 and, uh, and following, just to remind you, is that passage where Jesus actually goes back and says, there are three 
witnesses that I have. One is John the Baptist, one is the scriptures, and one is my father. And he, he uses that argument to reinforce this is who I am. Here is the evidence. It corroborates, it proves, and shows that what I'm saying is true. And then, of course, there's Abraham, and there's Moses, and the prophets. And so it's not that Jesus hasn't presented any evidence. He's presented evidence, heaped on evidence, and he's repeated himself, and he's repeated himself. So there's a lot of similarities to what's going on here with this blind man, well, formerly blind man, and his interaction with the Pharisees. Now, the question for us is, what will we do with the evidence? Belief or unbelief? John's writing for our benefit. He's writing for those who are reading his gospel. I'm presenting you Jesus, and the ultimate goal here is that you will read, and you will see the evidence, and you will believe, and through believing, you will have that life. So how will we respond to the evidence? Well, how, how did they respond to the evidence? What does it look like? This response is now pressed by the light. The light doesn't just expose stuff just to expose it. Right? God exposes man's sinfulness, man's stubbornness, man's blindness, man's pride for a reason. So that they can do something about it. Right? So the question is, how will we respond? Well, please understand this. Everyone responds to evidence. Every time I stand up here and I open the Word of God and I preach or teach the Word of God here, everyone is responding. Some of you are saying, this is really good stuff. Some of you are saying, I don't want to listen to this. Some of you are saying, I'm tired. I just, you know, I'm going to tune out and pretend like I'm listening, right? Uh, other, I mean, we're all responding in some different way, but we're all responding. There's no neutrality going on here at all, and there's no neutrality to the evidence that Jesus gives. It's so important for us to understand that everyone ultimately falls into one or two categories, either belief or unbelief. Now, someone might say, I really don't care. What category would that fall into? Unbelief. Another person might say, I'm curious. Where does that fall? It all depends, right? It all depends on what God is doing in them, all right? But everyone is in one of those two categories. There's no one on the fence. Now, there may be people who are on the journey. They haven't stepped into belief yet, but they're on the journey. There are others that are moving different directions. So, so here is kind of the, 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 the picture that we have. We have, might want to say, belief on this end, full-blown, total commitment to God, belief and faith. The other would be total blindness and darkness and blackness, okay? So we have here people that are on this journey. We have some people that are journeying this way toward the light, to belief, and we have people that are journeying further and further into darkness. That's the picture of what's going on here, and we see that unfolding in this particular story. Now, as the readers of John's Gospel, we have an advantage. We know that the blind beggar is healed because we've been told. We know that Jesus is the one who healed them. We know how Jesus did it. We, he did it by his own power. Okay? We, we have some insight because we're reading. We get the bigger picture of, of understanding who he is. So when we look at the Pharisees and how, how they respond to the evidence, we are left scratching our heads, thinking, why don't you get this? What's up with you guys? Isn't there a part of you that's just saying, come on. Come on, it's right there. See it. 
Why is this so difficult? And again, it reminds you of verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I come into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Part of God's judgment is to take those people who claim to be seers of his truth but are stubborn and, and prideful and uh, rejecting, maybe saying, you know, God talked to the hand, that kind of attitude, they are going to be moving now away from their perception of seeing into further and further blindness. It's part of his judgment. And those who are blind are moving into sight. Okay, so we're gonna look at those two things in reverse order. Let's look at the Pharisees first of all. The Pharisees who are on this journey of unbelief the seeing moving toward greater blindness. Why would they be called the seeing? Huh? Well, they, they have the truth, right? They can quote the truth. They study the truth. They're supposed to be experts of the truth, right? But they're moving in the wrong direction. So they think that they are the ones that hold all of that truth and are responsible for it and are the experts at it, but they are blind in their seeing. Okay? So in a sense, all of their activity is digging a deeper hole of greater darkness and blindness and unbelief. They're, they're digging a, a, a further path toward that, that blackness of darkness. And we're just going to look at, I have eight kind of highlight things, not necessarily progressive, somewhat progressive, but just things that I picked up as we went through this passage. They all happen to begin with the letter D. I'm sorry, it's a pastor's problem, um, but it just helps kind of uh, think through certain things here, okay? Um, so the journey of unbelief is marked by, and here are eight things. Number one, distractions, distractions. Now, how do, how do these Pharisees respond to what they have heard? Now I say distractions, I'm talking about the distractions of religious or cultural beliefs that contradict God's word. Look at verse 13 and following. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh, neon sign should be coming from the pages of your Bible right now, right? The Sabbath, they'll say, all right, it's the Sabbath day, this happened on the Sabbath, right? So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received sight. Now, remember, verse 14 there is, is what? That's John telling the story, painting the picture, helping the reader kind of come into what's going on, right? Verse 15, so the, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, the question is, did Jesus keep the Sabbath? And the answer to the question is, based on whose truth? Because the Pharisees had built rules and regulations and standards above and beyond God's word God's revealed word, to ensure that they would not violate God's word, but their good endeavors, their, I might want to say, worthy endeavors of establishing further parameters so that they wouldn't violate, created or ended up being the standard of truth. So there were, in their economy of things, 39 kinds of works that a faithful Pharisee would avoid on the Sabbath. 
And so what they are accusing Jesus of is when he spit into that mud and he started to work it, is they're accusing him of kneading. Not allowed to knead on the Sabbath, okay? It's a violation of God's law. Then he anointed, and that was considered a work, to anoint his eyes. And then he, he healed on the Sabbath. Now, I, all of those violations have nothing to do with God's revealed truth. They have everything to do with the Pharisees' addition to the requirements of God's word. So this is man's tradition. This is man's thinking that has been added to and now is the measurement of whether or not it should or shouldn't be done. So they are distracted by the Sabbath and their interpretation of the Sabbath and what is work. Just say it one more time. Jesus didn't break any Old Testament law at all. Okay? The second thing, though, um, as far as distractions are concerned, we continue reading in this passage. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And I think what's going on here is that these guys, you have one group that's Sabbath-focused, you have another group that's just sign-focused. Like, wow! And we, we've seen already in the Gospel how people are just easily wowed by the signs, and they completely miss the theological or the spiritual truth that is there, right? These are distractions. And they can be they can be. Um, religious distractions, they can also be cultural distractions. We've got to be careful that we're not measuring what God does and what God says by our culture or by our tradition, but only by his revealed truth. And sometimes it's really, really hard because we've grown up in a tradition, we've grown up with certain ways of thinking, and yet it's God's truth that should be what, what pushes and directs us. Secondly, um, then there's distractions. Secondly, there's what I'm calling dividing. There's a dividing. Notice what happens now in verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. That, that question is asked to force this man to take sides, either with the Pharisees or with Jesus. And they're expecting him to say what? What do you say? Well, you know, I'm not too sure. No, he, he's a prophet. It was, wasn't exactly what they were expecting him to say. But he, this, this, this division takes place. The statement there is crafted. The third one, then, is denial. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that the, he had been born blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the man who had received sight. In other words, the assumption on their part was not to believe until the parents came and verified the fact that he was born blind. Apparently, the neighbors and his friends that wasn't good enough testimony. There was an assumption of unbelief, denial. The next thing is what I'm calling denouncing. This is where you create an atmosphere of phobia if anyone embraces the evidence that they are not willing to consider themselves. I don't want to listen to the truth. I don't want to even consider it. But if you believe it, then you're not one of us. I'm not, I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna entertain it. I'm not gonna listen, I'm not gonna examine it. But listen, if you hold to it, then you are an outsider. Now listen to what happens here at verse 20 and following. His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And then John tells us why. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. 
people, why would they fear the Jews? For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now, please, please, please understand what's going on here. It wasn't like it was Gateway Bible Church. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then you can't come to Gateway Bible Church anymore and you can just hop across town to some other church that is out there. To be put out of the synagogue was to be excommunicated from the people that are part of your community. For you to go to the synagogue was a regional, social, spiritual, traditional thing because of your community. I mean, you didn't say, well, okay, I'm going to go to the synagogue actually across town. I'm going to catch the uh, Jerusalem Bart and just kind of get over there because I like that one better. It didn't work that way. When you were put out of the synagogue, you were ostracized. You were not allowed to purchase things, the places you normally would purchase them. You were, you were put out. So this is kind of a, a pressurized phobia for anyone that would even consider identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Already put out there. So there's this phobia going on. And so the parents are, you know, they're experiencing their son. And he's, yeah, he was born blind and now he sees, but why don't you talk to him? Because we don't want to acknowledge who the person actually is and what we think about this person. Talk to him. He'll tell you. Now, don't, don't, you know, don't think badly of the parents necessarily. I, th- I think if we were in similar situations, we would probably find ourselves wrestling with some of those same issues ourselves. You know, how do you respond when you are under pressure from those who do not want to believe the evidence or who are antagonistic to it? I mean, in the workplace... If you're identified as a Christian, hopefully if you are working in a Christian institution, it's not a problem. But if you are you know, working in the business world and you're identified as a Christian, you know, are, are people, do they, do they mock? Do they scorn? Do they kind of you know, jibe and they say certain things? And how do you respond to that? Do you kind of, you know, kind of slip away and try and soften your Christian presence and try and conform to who they are more than conforming to Christ? It's all sorts of different things going on there, right? But there was denouncing going on. Here's the next thing, demonizing. In this case, demonizing the source of the miracle, and that, of course, is Jesus. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. Now, this this wasn't the Pharisees gathering together and saying, we are here to give glory to God, and we want to give glory to God by just being honest about what we feel and what we know. So tell us once again what it is that happened. No, their give glory to God is listen, before God, you better tell us the truth. But we already know what the truth is. So you better tell us what we want to hear is the truth. And what do they say? Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. What do you think? Well, apparently you've already made your decision. (laughs) All right? They already demonized Jesus. Now, has there been any devil-demon discussion going on at all in the story or in the passage or the interaction that they have had with Jesus? Absolutely. That's why I'm using that expression. They have have demonized him and, and, um, and you'll come to that conclusion. But now, how do they even identify him as a sinner? Again, that's not a, that's not like a, well, you know, we're all sinner kind of a statement. This is a pejorative statement. I mean, they are, they are saying this with scorn about Jesus. Based on exactly what? 
Well, because he's violated what we hold dear. This is not the first Sabbath issue that has taken place, is it? And there's the next one. Notice what it says in verse 28. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, a disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, oh, as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So they're, they're degrading. Now, I, I know these words all kind of, you know, they kind of end up kind of, you know, all conglomerating together, right? But you, you, hopefully you can get some of the picture here of what's going on. They, they reviled him. And then they bring up Moses. Jesus has already dealt with Moses with them. He's already clarified that for them. And yet, all of a sudden, they're bringing this argument up again as if they didn't hear it the first time. Okay? Then there's what I'm calling demoralizing. Look at verse 32 and following. Never since the world began, this blind man, or former blind man says, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. Remember how the chapter began? The disciples asked the question, why is this man blind? Is his sin or his parent? Well, they're giving their take on this man's problem. He was born in utter sin. Now, here's, here's just kind of step back and, and just think about what they're saying. Evidence, born blind. Evidence, now you see. Now, because we don't like what you're saying, the only conclusion we can come to is you were born in utter sin. What about the celebration of the fact that you can see? The whole emphasis now is to go back and to condemn him for his, at least their perceived reason for his condition. Then there's the last one, discrediting, discrediting. And we continue on in that verse, verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. Now, the interesting thing, and we'll get to this in just a little bit, is that boy, does he ever teach them. I mean, he is, God somehow gives him incredible insight into the context of this darkness that these Pharisees find themselves in. So all of, all of these responses, all these interactions are just digging a further path toward greater darkness in their blindness. They're just moving further and further away from the light. Now we look at the man in this journey of belief, okay? And it's marked by this blind man now moving to greater sight. He hasn't arrived yet, but slowly, steadily, he is moving toward sight. Not physical sight, he already has that, but spiritual sight, that's the point here, okay? And we have here an incredible case for this greater sight and belief. There are two gifts that we wanna identify here, first of all. The gift of certainty, go to verse, go to verse 25, the gift of certainty. In this interaction with the Pharisees, he answers them, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. He is certain that he's not blind anymore. Well, how would he know that? 
I mean, you see how obvious and how clear and how purposeful this illustration is that God gives us here. He can clearly see that he can see because he's no longer blind. He is certain about his condition, and it's so obvious. To him it is. He knows what happened to him, but he doesn't understand it. He can't explain it, but he is certain that he was blind and now he can see. Now, let me just ask you a question. If you are a child of God, you may not completely understand how God came and breathed life into your soul. Or you can maybe tell what the day was and, and uh, you know, the events that took place on that day, but you, you, you may not completely comprehend all the spiritual transaction that was taking place in your soul. But one thing you do know is I was walking a path of rebellion against God and now I have been freed of my sin because of what he has done on the cross for me. I was blind, but now I see. This gift, not only of certainty, but of, of clarity. Of clarity. Go to verse 11, if you would please, 11. And there you will find out when they ask him about who did this, who, who, who you know, gave you sight when you were blind, he says, the man called Jesus. And then as we move along in the story, again they ask him, and remember to take sides, and he says, well, he is a prophet. Then you go to verse 33 again as he's been interacting with them and he's responding to them and to their just kind of crazy thinking. He ultimately says, he is a man from God. Only a man from God. Only someone from God could do this. And of course, at the end of the story, we find him identifying Jesus as the son of man. There, there is this, this wonderful clarity we see developing and growing in this person. Now friends, please hear this. We talked a little bit about this last time. Oftentimes, um, you know, we, we, we expect maybe conversions to take place. Boom, there it is, wow. It happens. More often than not, though, what we have is we have a slow, steady movement toward the light. And you, you first understand that Jesus was a real historical character. And you understand that he did some wonderful things and he taught some wonderful things. But that's still, much of the culture believes that, right? He was a good historical prophet and teacher and we should respect what he has to say. But th th it all kind of falls apart when you actually start reading what he had to say. And what he has to say is pretty exclusive, isn't it? And so you keep on walking down that path, going, I, I don't know if I can handle this exclusivity. And then you study it, and you're like, well, but he's right, and he's true. And you, you start to be, begin to understand there's more, there's more truth and more insight, and, and the light becomes brighter. And you, you come to the place in this journey where you see Jesus Christ not simply as a good teacher and a prophet, but as the very Messiah, the very savior of your soul because he died on the cross for your sins. So there's this, there's this journey that God takes us on. Now friends, I wouldn't think it would be too surprising if we have a variety of people that are in different places on that journey here today. You may say, I'm a child of God, but in your heart you know you actually haven't gotten there yet. You're still on that journey. There's a good side to that, and there's a side of that that's panicky. <laughs> the good side is you're on that journey. 
And I, I see this, this man who's born blind, I see him as a picture here of growing understanding, growing clarity, as a wonderful picture and encouragement for you as a child of God to, to continue that journey and to continue to see not only Jesus as a good teacher and a good historical person who did many good things, but as the one who ultimately went to a cross. And that was the reason why he came. That transaction, the death of his, his life on that cross and shedding the, his blood for our sin. That was the purpose for which he came. There are, then there are those who believe that and are continuing on in their journey now to become like Christ. And so these realities, these truths, give clarity, give, give help to us in our journey. Now notice some of the, the insight and clarity that we, we find just developing in the story. Look at verse 29. And just put, you know, put your, your humor caps on here because I think some of this is pretty funny. We know that God has spoken to Moses, this is what the Pharisees say, but as far as this man, we don't, do not know where he comes from. Pause. Again, if you've been studying this, this, this gospel with us, how many times has Jesus said, this is where I come from? In his interaction with him. We don't know where he comes from. You haven't been listening. Verse 30, the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. I, I, I read sarcasm in here, okay? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Now, what is true? He opened my eyes. You're more concerned about where he comes from, but he's already told you. Now, he, now Blyman doesn't know all that necessarily. We know, he says, that God does not listen to sinners. And what do they just call Jesus? A sinner. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This guy gets around. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Let me just incredible perception. And we have to understand, this is incredible perception, and yet he has not bowed the knee. Okay? So he's totally putting these Pharisees to shame. Here, an ignorant, former blind beggar has greater sight than the learned, clearly ignorant leaders of the religious uh, establishment of that day. In summary, here is what he says. Jesus is powerful and compassionate. He opened up my eyes. He is obedient. If God is listening to him, it's because he is a worshiper and does the Father's will. He is unique. Never has there been anyone like Jesus. He is sent from God, i.e., he is a prophet sent from God. If he were not from God, he could do nothing. Therefore, he must be from God because this is what he did. That's the logic of it. This is a beautiful picture of that journey we've talked about. Slowly building a case for greater sight, greater belief. So what journey are you on? It could be a warning to you right now. Maybe you're headed to further blackness, to further blindness, or it can be an encouragement to push you closer and, and closer to the light. And finally then, not only after we've had the actual miracle the evidence, the, the response pressed by the light. Now we have the judgment, the judgment pronounced by the light. And just, just notice what it says. First of all, the man. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, because that's what they did. 
They cast him out of the synagogue. I don't think it was just like, well, today you're out. No, this was, we don't like you. We don't want anything to do with you. You are one of his disciples. You're embracing him. You're out. So Jesus heard that he had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Now stop. He had heard him, but now he is seeing him. Okay, this is all tied into the, the theme and the, the issues that are going on in this passage. Right? He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So the judgment of the Pharisees is to cast him out, but the judgment of Jesus is to welcome him in. He says, I believe, and he worshiped. Now, friends, there is, there's probably no greater fruit than someone who says, I believe, based on evidence, based on truth, based on what they've seen Jesus Christ do and, and be in their life, and ultimately bow the knee and worship him in the context where there is this incredible phobia and having been excommunicated from that synagogue, he now bows the knee to this one that he recognizes as the Messiah and he worships him. Religion pushes Jesus out of the picture or recreates Jesus in its own image to fit its own system. And religion pushes out followers of the biblical Christ calls them simpletons, ignorant, blind followers of sensationalism, and go down the list. But this man, I believe, based on truth, came to faith. Then you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees here, some of them, it says, were near him and heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Now, the point here is this. Even with all this evidence, they still didn't recognize that they were blindness. They still identified themselves as people who believed, and therefore, they're still guilty. You've got a blind man who now sees who's worshiping. You have people who should see because they have the truth, who are headed further into the darkness, and they are struggling with guilt. But they pass it off because they are conforming themselves to the religion of the day as opposed to the Savior who is right before them. Let me just give some concluding thoughts just through this passage just that are far more applicable to where we are. Number one, we are born spiritually blind. It's not a one of us that when we were born, came out a worshiper of God, untainted with sin. We were born spiritually blind. It's you and me, all of us. Secondly, um, our, our nature is that we're beggars. I mean, we, we have nothing. We, because we're blind, we're totally dependent on other people, and there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to change our status. The third thing, Jesus takes the initiative. Now, I know there are people that you know, say, well, I was, I'm seeking God, okay? But it, it is God that ultimately seeks you. Scripture talks about the fact that he draws you to himself. So if you are truly seeking him, it's because he is doing a work in you already. 
The third thing, we respond through repentance and faith. Now we don't necessarily see the specifics of that in this passage except for the fact he says, I believe. But that is theologically what takes place. We respond by embracing him as Lord and Savior and that embracing involves repentance of our sin, trusting fully in what he has accomplished for us on that cross. Fifth thing, we who were once blind beggars now see. Once we step through the door of conversion, boom, new eyes, new awareness, all sorts of new realities that are part of our spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And that leads us to the last thing now. We who are once blind beggars now worship. And we, you know, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, which is your reasonable, one translation, I think good translation, service of worship. Living your life as a, an expression of service in worship to God. That's what he's called us to. So it doesn't end at conversion. That's a beautiful part of the, the piece of what God is doing. And as the evidence is laid out here for the readers, it's here's Jesus and through him, if you believe in him, you will have life. We love that message. We embrace that message. But it, that life includes then a life of worship of him, to him, praising him for who he is. Just a wonderful, wonderful story great story for us to chew on and muse on. I just want to encourage you to go back and, and revisit some things in here and squeeze this passage more. And when you go to a home group tonight, just again, wrestle with some of these things and pull more out that's there because there is so much more that we can, we can be thinking about. What We, who are God's children, were once blind and we have the certainty that now we see. Now, that's a simple message, isn't it? But all that happens because we have a righteous judge who is also the light, shines his light and exposes us for who we are and presents his son, Jesus Christ, as the solution, as the cure, as the means by which we can be reconciled. And through that reconciliation, we can move from blindness into light, which is living our lives for his glory. So Lord, help us today to consider what it is that you're doing in our lives. We are all here today listening, hearing, meditating on your revealed word, Lord, which is evidence heaped upon evidence heaped upon evidence. And the question for us, Lord, is what are we gonna do with that? I ask, Lord, that we as your children would seek to conform ourselves, Lord, to what you are presently doing in our lives. Maybe there's some sin in our life that we need to come before you and confess. Maybe there's a, a pursuit that we need to get back on. Lord, maybe, maybe we realize that we have not quite finished that journey into, um, into becoming a child of God. We are, we're still viewing Jesus Christ as kind of a, a nice, respectable human being. It's part of history, and he has nice teachings. But Lord, would you take that person and Lord, would you help them, Lord, move from darkness into light. And Lord, maybe there's some people here today who are stubborn in their blindness. Lord, I ask that the warning of this passage would resound. And Lord, that you would allow them to be shaken in their spirit so that they can see you as that one high and lifted up, Lord, worthy of our praise. We ask this in your precious holy name.
Amen.